Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Intangible Podcast. And today we have a very exciting guest, Professor Fromm from Yale University. Hello, Nicholas. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for joining us. And so all the viewers will know a common question that I ask every, every time is uh, what inspired you to study like history and for in your case, specifically Assyrian and Babylonian history? Yeah, that's uh, kind of an uh, unorthodox choice, uh, I know. <laughs> and it's not like I, I had in mind to become an astrologist, someone specializing in the uh, languages and civilizations of the ancient Near East when I was in kindergarten. So that was a somewhat later development in my life. Um, it mostly happened when I had an opportunity to take biblical Hebrew in high school. And I took it not for religious reasons, really, but rather because I was interested in in a completely different language and a, and a very different world, I thought. And while doing this, I realized that uh, the world of, of the Hebrew Bible was really part of a much larger world of, of the ancient Near East, um, some 3,000 years of, of history documented by writing, and really extensive amounts of writing, in fact, um, to a significant extent still unexplored. Um, the decipherment of cuneiform, the writing system used in the ancient East predominantly, uh, had only happened in the uh, 1840s and 50s. So this was a comparatively young discipline. There was still a lot to be done. And all that attracted me. And so I, I actually uh, began to study it in Germany and eventually ended up in the United States. Very interesting. Yeah. And uh, moving on to your current work, right? Uh, obviously, you work at Yale. But so what does your work at Yale entail, but also um, any other projects that you might be working on? Yeah, so I, I've just published a book, uh, a book about ancient Assyria, the Assyrian Empire, uh, the rise and fall of the world's first empire is its title. Um, and I'm now working on a number of projects. I have a project called the Cuneiform Commentaries Project, where I edit along with other scholars, uh, from commentaries on ancient texts. So the Babylonians and the Syrians were the first to sort of think about their own written tradition and to to comment on it. Um, I also have a number of projects related to uh, clay tablets from Yale Babylonian collection that gets us perhaps a little bit closer to to the topic you will probably be mostly interested in. I also, uh, in addition to all of that, uh, am currently in the process of uh, completing a book with editions of some 100 or so um, mostly poorly preserved administrative uh, texts from the city of Ashur, which were uncovered during excavations in which I participated as a epigrapher in 2001. So it's a long time ago. Um, and at the time, I made some notes and so on. But the tablets then disappeared in the, the chaos of the, of the 2003 war. And were only fairly recently rediscovered in the Iraq Museum in Baghdad. I actually went there last year to look at them again. And so this year and in the coming year, I have to complete this edition along with together with 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 a colleague of mine. So we are working on that as well. Very interesting. And you talked a little bit about your book, and I'll certainly put that uh, in the description of this episode for those who want to check it out and maybe read it. Could you maybe talk about the writing and publishing process and how that was for you? Was it difficult? With this very book, um, yes. yeah, I mean, usually, of course, I mean, I've published a lot of stuff, uh, but normally, of course, like all scholars, everyone working in academia, and what we do is we we write for small audiences of specialists. Yeah. Um, that's sort of a specific code for that. And um, when I'm I'm familiar with how this fundamentally works, I, I am an editor at some 
some mm-hmm. theories and journals myself. Um, in the case of this book, though, I mean, this book on Assyria, of course, for me, uh, I mean, the challenge was to write for broader audience. I mean, this was a was yeah. a book meant I mean, not to become the greatest bestseller in the world, but a book um, appealing, ideally appealing also to a broader audience. So yeah, yeah. I had written something kind of similar already in Germany. Uh, I had written a small history of Mesopotamia, but the history of Mesopotamia was still a little bit sort of more conventional. And here with this book on Assyria, it really, I mean, the challenge was to make it interesting to to not to to downplay the complexities of, of Assyrian history, but really to um, emphasize the uh, exciting factor. It's, I think Assyrian history really is, for all sorts of reasons, very exciting. And um, so what was uh, an interesting experience for me, for example, was I submitted my manuscript and I had a very good editor at Basic Books and I thought, okay, I'd done my my job, but I got a very long set of recommendations, what to change and how to reorganize certain things, how to rewrite some things and my Germanisms and all that. Yeah. And I mean, it's always sort of a narcissistic blow when you first sort of get criticism of this kind, mm-hmm. but it was very good. I think it really improved the whole thing. And so yeah. I did the writing and uh, I, I think it was a good experience for me, a new experience. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And again, that'll be in the description and I'm excited to read it, honestly. I'm, uh, as you say, I, a lot of times these types of books are just for the experts, but it's great that some of us who, who don't know as much as you um, can become involved and just learn. And that's how people are inspired at the end of the day. And so shifting gears a little bit, um, a lot of our discussion today is going to be based on cuneiform tablets, right? And and our, you've already talked about that a little bit. Because this topic is relatively new for my viewers and for me as well, could you just describe what those are and the importance of them? Yeah, I think that's a very good question, important question for our discussion. Um, I mean, one thing to keep in mind right away is <clears throat> cuneiform tablets, like cylinder seals, another important artifact group from ancient Iraq, uh, cuneiform tablets are very small. Uh, they tend to be about as big as uh, a cell phone. Also, some are larger, but usually they are small. Some are broken in smaller pieces. That means they are easily transportable. And that, of course, is a reason why they can be easily sent out of the country, why they end up on the antiquities market and large numbers and all that. So this is something important to keep in mind. Mm. Cuneiform is the name for the writing system that was used in Mesopotamia. It is named cuneiform, this wedge-shaped or nail-shaped, because the individual elements of uh, the signs uh, look like look like nails or wedges. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the people in ancient Iraq from roughly 3,400 onwards until the first century AD, uh, wrote uh, in this writing system in different languages, primarily Sumerian, Babylonian, and Assyrian. Uh, They wrote in these languages and in this script on clay. Um, And uh, that is the reason why all this stuff actually is preserved. Uh, Because uh, in Iraq, uh, if people write on on papyrus or paper or or parchment, uh, it doesn't endure. It's, It's very few places where these things are preserved, I mean, Egypt being one of them. But uh, what you write on clay is actually preserved. So um, when you burn down a, a library with, with parchment or papyrus in it, then everything is lost. When you burn down a library with clay tablets, of course, it's when I mean, the tablets are fired and they're even in more stable than they would be otherwise. But even if they are not fired in antiquity or uh, later, um, then they still, if it was just sun-dried, they would still survive. And so we we have in museums all over the world uh, probably a significantly more than half a million of these tablets inscribed with texts of all kinds, anything you wish, from 
literary texts like the famous Gilgamesh epic to extremely mundane lists of foodstuffs being distributed to messengers and so on and so forth. So the earliest medical texts, mathematical texts, um, royal inscriptions, letters are particularly interesting, um, but even also also these, these administered everyday documents. So it's an enormous amount of stuff uh, illustrating really often in great detail um, a very long period of history. I mean, the more than half of, of, of uh, world history, um, if you start with, well, the beginning of writing, this is the defining factor, is covered by this writing system. So um, these things really matter, in other words. Mm -hmm. Of course. And I'm sure that these tablets um, can almost provide like, like a, a view into the culture, correct, of of the people there. They are defining of the culture that a lot of other cultures throughout history might not, we might not know about as much about them because they don't have such great preserved materials. And obviously the point of this podcast is to discuss preservation. So I wanted to move on to something very interesting that you were telling me before um, we got on and when, when we were emailing you, uh, you've told me that you were present in some rep repatriation cases of of looted cuneiform tablets could you please talk about those and what your role was in that because um obviously repatriation is a very important part of preservation so i just like to hear uh what your what how that experience was yeah i mean maybe we can talk about this issue of repatriation also a little later but my involvement in some of these cases i can briefly outline what what i did and what my role was uh, fundamentally, it was uh, that of an outside sort of expert witness. So um, me being able to read these things and to tell people uh, when were they written and from where most likely are they, what's their um, provenience, not necessarily their provenance, but their provenience. Um, there were several occasions when I was asked by different um, yeah, authorities and private people uh, to, to provide expertise on these matters. So one case... Um, was related to one uh, object only that was in 2010, I think. Um, yeah, I think it was 2010. I was asked to um, establish the authenticity and uh, background of a gold tablet inscribed in cuneiform that had turned up in an estate um, of a man who had died in, in New York State, um, where some of the heirs had the feeling this might actually be uh, from from ancient Iraq and could come from a German museum, but uh, others de debated and 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 uh, rebuked that claim. Uh, at any rate, uh, a lawsuit ensued, and I was asked to look at this tablet, and um, I uh, was able to establish that this tablet uh, indeed had come from the city of Ashur, uh, first political and and uh, religious capital of of ancient Syria, had been written in the late 13th century BCE. The fact that it was a gold tablet, of course, made it a very special object because there are very, very few of these. So this was kind of an exciting thing. Um, the case, though, was complex for all sorts of, of reasons, uh, reasons also related to uh, now the later history of this tablet. So these objects, of course, have, have biographies, and I think that's something you will probably be very interested in. It was discovered by German archaeologists in, the, I think, around 1910 or so, and had then been sent to Germany. It had been part of a division of finds between the Ottoman uh, Empire at the time in charge of Ashur and uh, the German uh, government. Mm -hmm. So it was sent first to um, 
to to Portugal, and then it was held up there for uh, some some fifteen years or so because of the outbreak of World War One. Eventually, it was sent to Berlin and was an, exhibited in the Berlin Museum. But came World War Two, it was put into um, into uh, yeah some 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 safe rooms uh, in case there would be bombing and so on, and it survived. But then it disappeared. Um, at the end of the war, under circumstances that still remain unclear. Um, at the time, the museum was um, well um, visited by, by Russian troops who, who took some things out of it. Later on, more stuff was actually sent to the Soviet Union. At any rate, during the pretty chaotic phase in 1945, when all that happened, this gold tablet disappeared and it reappeared in this in this estate Interesting. and what made the, and and so the the berlin museum then claimed ownership um as it had um actually um displayed that tablet in the 19 late 1920s and, and 1930s uh, and asked me to to really serve as an expert witness and and, and make a point that it was really that very tablet uh, which I was able to do on all based on on a number of idiosyncrasies. There was uh, something written over something else on that tablet, which of course made it unique and easily identifiable. Um, the case was, I would say, emotionally and morally charged, apart from being legally complex, because the um, original owner of this thing that uh, somehow acquired it was a survivor of the Holocaust in Germany. And so here now you had a situation that a German museum wanted this thing back from someone who, of course, had been uh, treated very, very catastrophically by 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 the Germans at an earlier point in time. The 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 lawsuit eventually resulted in the return of the tablet to the Berlin Museum. So it is now back in in Germany. It took a number of rounds, and I spare you the details about the specific legal uh, finities that that yeah. were. Part of the whole thing, but it 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 was a case. I think I mentioned it uh, in some detail because it shows the the different dimensions of these things. Another uh, a second uh, time I became involved in um, well, um, yeah, lawsuits related to cuneiform tablets was uh, in 2016 when I was asked to inspect some uh, clay tablets from the collection of of the. Of the Green family of Hobby Lobby, who had acquired it in um, in the uh, Arab um, United Arab Emirates in in 2010 or so, uh, under very murky circumstances, it must be said, and uh, so uh, they were declared by in, in packages were with 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 uh, statements that these were uh, specimens of ceramic tiles, which of course was really disingenuous. Someone figured it out. And then, uh, yeah, it was necessary to identify what this stuff really was. And uh, here, as it turned out, uh, I was able to show that these were tablets very much the opposite of this gold tablet, which is with truly, truly spectacular objects. The, 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 the tablets from the green case were actually not spectacular at all. They were small, administrative texts um, recording the issuing of food for dogs in the palace in a provincial town of Irisagrik in roughly 2050 BCE. So this was not exactly Gilgamesh or yeah, uh, some, some golden treasure. It was really everyday documentation on, um, on stuff that was fundamentally very ephemeral. Yet, of course, at the same time, it also provides these tablets, provide great insights into the workings of the economy at the time and and many details and, and how um, well 
messengers were, were remunerated where they went in order to inspect canals and um, other uh, other other um, infrastructure and so on. So they too are quite interesting. And here the challenge was primarily to establish that they actually had left Iraq um, after 1970, which is the date of this um, famous UNESCO uh, resolution on uh, the illicit nature of, of the export and import of, of cultural artifacts um, and that these things really came from Iraq. Um, and it was possible to do this in this case because, as I said, these tablets were, many of them at least, came from a site known as Iris Sagrik, and uh, it was possible to establish that uh, practically all tablets on that site um, had come from, uh, that none had been recorded anywhere before 2002, that is, um, with the American-led invasion. There seems to have been looting at this place, which then led to the uh, illicit um, export of these tablets that must have been found by locals at that time. And it was also possible to establish that they really had to come from, from Iraq. Because, of course, you could otherwise argue, well, they might also have been from some other country where cuneiform was used. But Irisakvik is still not uh, located with 100% certainty, even though it is now very likely uh, to be a site named uh, Al-Wilaya in, in today in Iraq. But it is very clear that it is very close to that site, at least if it is not the site itself, and so that it definitely comes from Iraq. And here, the um, the, the, the final judgment was, was quite clear that uh, these uh, objects had to be returned to Iraq um, and uh, the um, yeah the the Green family also had to uh, pay a significant fine. Um, Interesting. And this is rare to happen because again the the burden of proof in such cases is pretty substantial. Uh, you have to show that it's actually not coming from a, a Hong Kong uh, private collection from from eighteen hundred eighty eighty five or so, which is something is that is often claimed in such cases, and it's difficult to prove the opposite. Very interesting. Yeah, those. thank you for giving those specific examples. Those are very interesting. Um, so moving on to a more conceptual and maybe more difficult question to answer, what should we do with looted cuneiform tablets? Yeah, I think you have already mentioned, um, of course, that's kind of a million dollar question. And yeah, <laughs> um, I've already mentioned this, this is complicated. Um, it's, I think, um, everyone who would claim that there are easy answers to that question in tends to ignore certain aspects that should be considered. Um, they're legal, they're political, they're emotional, and they're also scholarly um, perspectives to keep in mind here. Um, so in the case, for instance, of these tablets from the Green Collection, the legal situation was very clear. These tablets had been illicitly brought out of Iraq after 2002. Um, that could be shown to be the case. If, if uh, this is the situation, then I think... Um, the right thing to do is indeed return them. Um, and um, this is what has happened in this case. What's more complicated then is the question of documentation. And I personally, I am uh, among those who believe it's it's a good idea to detach this issue of documentation from the issue of ownership. So I think anything, uh, whether it's uh, legal, illegal, in whatever whatever status it should be, any anything that is 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 an ancient object should be documented. There are of course archaeologists who say that by doing this and by uh, working, let's say, for collectors, privately owned artifacts, uh, one just simply enhances the trade and makes it more attractive for these people to to collect. It's not entirely wrong, but I would say these people collect anyway. 
And um, the reality also simply is, of course, that when you talk about clay tablets, for example, a very small percentage of them comes from really regular excavation. So all we know about the ancient Near East comes from tablets that were brought out of Iraq and other countries in, 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 in the Middle East, usually at an early point in time under let's say legally not not necessarily illegally but under legally somewhat problematic circumstances and uh, in my view it is entirely unrealistic and and uh, ethically also not responsible to say that these things should not be published because there is this uh, issue with um, ownership and so on i would even say though that with some of the collections that have been um created in the past, let's say, 30 years or so, ever since Iraq, um, 40 years perhaps, ever since, especially after 1990, Iraq uh, has been uh, almost constantly in crisis. So yeah. uh, several very large collections were created, including, for instance, one in Norway, um, uh, owned by a Norwegian, a Norwegian uh, a billionaire, who, among other objects, for instance, um, owns the first law code in history. So very well preserved prism inscribed with the laws of Onama. Now, should we, because he probably got this thing, I say probably because it can't prove that, so I have to be careful here not making statements that are not backed up, but probably, I would say, in this case, at least under very dubious circumstances, should we ignore this extremely important text simply because of the yeah, dubious provenance history it has? So my take on this would be no. You can talk to other people who have a different opinion on this. Mm -hmm. But I think um, as scholars, we have a responsibility to make these things available. Otherwise, the loss is just, um, yeah, that, that it happens twice. I also am not convinced that the idea, I mean, there is this somewhat facile argument, everything should just be returned. I mean, even things that were acquired legally to the places where they are coming from. And in my view, that's not a good idea. Um, I think, for instance, when you think about Iraq, and I simply, I mean, I'm not arguing that everything should be in the West. Absolutely not. It's very important, of course, that Iraq owns its, its really significant portion of its uh, sort of archaeological um, past. But the the idea of having every single artifact from ancient Mesopotamia stored in the Iraq Museum in Baghdad is, in my view, really not a good one because one bomb is enough and the whole cultural uh, tradition of ancient Iraq is lost. Again, to be clear, I'm also not saying everything should be in the British Museum or in the Berlin Museum. And as a German, I mean, I know full well that, for instance, during World War II, the Indian Museum in Berlin was completely destroyed and a lot of artifacts from uh, from Torfan and other places uh, were, were lost in the process. In my view, it is good if these things are somewhat spread out a little bit and also so that scholars have access to them. So I think collections that um, safeguard these artifacts all over the world have then, of course, a responsibility to make them available to scholars so they can publish them and to the public to the extent it makes sense to do so. Yeah. And I think museums for quite some time have not sufficiently lived up to the need to be open and to to help uh, making these things available. But that applies, of course, not only to museums in the West, I would like to emphasize. And, and that is what museums and collections have to do. And if that's the case, it's even not so terribly important where individual objects are. When you talk about specific objects of great iconic emotional value, 
I think you can always, of course, have discussions. I mean, I understand that the Greeks um, would like to have the Elgin marbles. It's a complicated story and I'm not getting, I mean, it's not my field, so I'm not getting into it. But of course, this is something emotionally extremely charged. But this idea that every kind of average art object uh, or every 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 play tablet, for instance, needs to be returned to Iraq, I think would really be a mistake. And I do not think most Iraqis would not want that, actually. Yeah. And actually, I did. I was just thinking of that, what you said about the Elgin marbles and the Parthenon marbles. That's one of the topics that I've been grappling a lot with, uh, as obviously um, I'm from Greece. And that's something I've been grappling a lot with, with the Parthenon, um, with the Cycladic Preservation Group, another organization that I have. And I think it's very important to be able to see both sides, right? It's oftentimes, um, as you said, right, very... Um, it's very emotionally charged, but it's very important to look at things the way they are. And again, I think you made some great points in what you said. So I did want to ask you one final question. And that's also, as like the first question, this is a question that I asked all my guests. So in your opinion, and obviously in the scope of your expertise, because it's much different than many of the other um, guests that I've had on the um, podcast, why is cultural preservation so important? Well, um, I think... Um, the the past is important because we cannot understand the present without the past. If we want to understand the present, uh, all we can do is compare to the past. And I would say that includes the remote past. Many um, central institutions that are still with us, the state, the city, uh, certain types of, of division of labor and, and writing and certain types of communication, for instance, are all kind of going back to the ancient Near East. So uh, here it's the roots of modern of the modern world that uh, we better understand something about if we want to understand uh, where these things come from but also really simply in terms of well how we how we understand political processes uh, unless we have an, a way of seeing how how things happened in the past we were not able to uh, yeah, to make the right decisions. And I fully acknowledge, of course, that modern times are in many, and in some regards, very different from every previous period. So we know when uh, prior to the 20th century had nuclear weapons that has obviously enormously changed things. And I mean, the, the number of people on, on, on the world now with 8 billion, of course, is something that is uh, totally unthinkable in the ancient world. But um, unfortunately, in many other respects, um, when it comes to decision making, when it comes to these emotional factors of politic policy making and so on, we are not that different from from let's say people in ancient Babylonia, Syria, or for that matter, ancient Greece. And so, I really believe that there is something to learn. So that's sort of the more abstract uh, answer I would give you. The more concrete is, um, I think, um, that it is very important also to have a somewhat tangible uh, past that when you actually see an object from the past, you do have a different, suddenly a different feeling about that past. I have always uh, see that when when I have students here at Yale and I show them the Babylonian collection and I hand to them some some clay tablets or some cylinder seals. Also, I show them some of the few Assyrian reliefs we have. There is great excitement. So they may really find my lectures quite boring. Okay. Uh -huh. But when to see these texts and when they hold a clay tablet written 4,000 years ago, then there is this thing that Walter Benjamin, the famous German philosopher, called the aura. So there is something very special. And um, I mean, if people have a chance to experience then that, then they will find that I think they, they will take the past suddenly more, more, more serious. So that is what why, why it's not only important to read books, but also really to 
to visit museums and uh, to to uh, go to ancient sites and uh, to make sure that these places are in good shape and that uh, in talking about preservation that these ancient sites for instance wherever they are uh, that uh, people are taking care of them and that you can visit them and um, yeah that that you can have this more immediate connection to them yeah and that's that's a great answer an amazing answer and I thank you so much for coming on to the podcast i think you have really given me something to think about and i i before this i wasn't really aware of like the the world of cuneiform and cuneiform tablets but i think now i'm <laughs> you've sparked my interest certainly so that's something that i'm gonna keep researching and keep looking at and so yeah so thank you so much for coming on it's it's been a pleasure to have you Great. I really enjoyed it as well. And thank you for your questions. I, I had to think about them as well. So it's good for me too. <laughs> thank you.